Good morning, really glad uh, you're here. Let's start with some audience participation part of the sermon today. Uh, you can uh, go ahead and grab your Bible and open it to Luke chapter 22. As well, you should find a couple of name tags either in your seat or somewhere around you. If you'd grab those and a pen, here's what I need you to do. If you're a regular, uh, if you're a member here at TCC or a regular attender, if you would write your name on both of those name tags and some form of contact information, ideally that's a cell phone number or an email address, not your mailing address or Twitter handle or some other obscure way to track you down, uh, the easiest way we can get in touch with you so uh, on each name tag, uh, your name and contact information. If you're visiting from out of town or new to TCC, you get a free pass today, all right? So uh, you sit back and, uh, and listen and participate in what we're doing, but no need to do a name tag if you're not a regular or a member here. Luke chapter 22, we'll turn our attention there uh, in a few minutes. We are in our fourth of five installments of a series called Vital Signs, considering the marks of the church, and as we've said all along, they're only marks of the church if they're marks of individuals who make up the church. So we can't become something corporately that is, that is not true of us individually. So these marks that we're considering the corporate nature of the church are, are, are much more so and primarily marks of you as a, as a person. If you are a thoughtful individual, which just looking at your faces, you all seem quite thoughtful, the question that you should have as you gather uh, here, get out of bed, uh, come to uh, gather with God's people each week is, is what's, what's the point of all of this? Like, why, why, do we, why do we do it? What are we after? Well, the same thing week in and week out. If I were to attempt to peg one singular goal that we're after as leaders and as individuals of the church, it would be this. We, we are running after life transformation. That's, that's what we, we want to see happen consistently among God's people. And if you're here, this is, this is something that unites us all, to, regardless of our socioeconomic status or background or history or ethnicity or whatever the case may be. The, the end goal is the same. We, we want, we desire life transformation. So if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're, for whatever reason, invited by a friend or coworker uh, or just kind of eavesdropping, you said, hey, I need something to do on Sunday at 11 o'clock. Let's go sit in some blue chairs. Uh, great. We are so glad you're here. Here's what we're after. We're praying that God would change your life. Okay, that's what we're running after. Uh, if you're here and you're a young Christian, kind of new to this whole deal, uh, we're praying for the same thing. We're after life transformation. And perhaps a little bit more difficult to get your mind around if you're, if you're here and you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, 20 year, 30 year, 40 year vet to this thing called Christianity. We're after the very same thing, life transformation. That, that's what we want to see happen. And we believe that God in his kindness has given us some ordinary means of grace to accomplish that goal. Now, when I use the word ordinary, I don't mean mundane or kind of ho-hum, cavalier. I mean we don't have to invent all types of new things to produce life transformation. We, we, 
are foolish enough to believe that God's spirit and God's word and God's people are enough to do that task. So we're, we're just going to keep teaching the Bible, keep praying, keep loving each other, keep living on mission. And we believe that God's spirit is active and at work in those ordinary means of grace to do something extraordinary in each of us, and that is produce transformation. Now, the danger is, if that doesn't happen, we all get bored and tap out. We lose interest in things that don't produce life change in us, whether we're newbies at it or we've been doing it for any length of time. Consider, let's use a parallel image of working out. Again, you guys look like proficient workout experts, 6 a.m.ers at the gym, all of you. Let's assume, though, that you're one of those kind of fallen off the workout routine regimen, all right? And you jump back in and decide, 5 a.m., I'm going to be at the gym. How long does it take you to tap out if you don't begin to see some transformation happen? Not, not long, right? You're, you're not going to hang in at the 6 a.m. club or 5 a.m. club or whatever the case may be if you don't start to see your life begin to transform. And, and thankfully, like good dietary practices, being in the gym at 6 a.m., do produce these external results that we can notice and measure, like two days later after your first trip to the gym, when you're backing down the steps awkwardly, you know something's been at work, right? Or when you have to put your hand down to brace yourself on whatever assortment of things you sit upon because your legs will not hold you up anymore, you know like what I did at 6 a.m. had a, a result in my life two or three days later. This is, this is what is, is supposed to happen both in our physical lives and in our spiritual lives, but it's much more difficult to see in our spiritual lives, right? I mean, the same principles at work. If you're 20 years going to church week in and week out, and you're not seeing yourself change, this whole deal gets really boring, loses its purpose, and, and around our culture, people tap out left and right, right? Because it's like, what, why do this if it's not got some in-game big result in my life and uh, unless you are here this morning and you're saying, I've arrived, like I've hit perfection, we all see the need of transformation happening. So this is what we're running after. But change in physical areas as in spiritual areas is really, really hard. Particularly change in deeply ingrained areas is quite challenging. If you've been out of the physical exercise routine for 20 years, bro, it is tough to get back in that groove. If you've been sloppily performing your religious duty for 20 years without seeing any transformation, it is tough to see spiritual transformation result. But by God's grace, we have a powerful spirit that's at work to accomplish what we can't muster up on our own. So that's what we're running after. We believe these vital signs then become markers of the transformation that we're, we're after. They're the pain in your calves or the, the hurt when you reach up to the can that's on the top shelf of your pantry and you feel, hey, I did too many lat pull-downs yesterday, right? These are the areas that we're supposed to see changing in us. One would be our glad-hearted worship, that we grow in knowledge, awareness, and submission to what God has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we would see 
we would notice transformation in our generosity and our hospitality. There is a danger in area number one if it's the only vital sign. We can become very inward, inwardly focused, very prideful in how much we know, how thin we can slice it theologically. If we don't have some outgoing action in our generosity and hospitality, things get really out of whack. So we want to see ourselves growing in our posture of love and service to one another. Thirdly, in our missionary living. As Hugh taught last week, we want to be the kind of people that are demonstrating and proclaiming the good news of the gospel everywhere that we go. We want to increase our, the fluidity with which we speak of what God has done. It just rolls off our tongue. It's natural in conversation that we would talk about the one who saved us from Satan's sin and death. God's kindness to us this way, Hugh mentioned uh, last, last week, people praying for our good news clubs and those that were serving to proclaim the gospel there. And, and this week, Amber was sharing that we had two little girls pray to receive Christ through the gospel proclamation of individuals from this church and others that are serving in our good news clubs. And we praise God for that. And that's the kind of things that we want to see intensify as God's people are living on mission, that we have this outward proclamation of the gospel. And then this morning, our fourth area is that of our servant-heartedness. I'm not sure that's a word, but we're going to use it. We want to grow in our posture of service to one another and to the watching world. The text that Christina just read, John 13, is, is probably one of the most astounding texts in all the scriptures, isn't it? I mean, consider the nature of that passage. That the pre-existent, eternal Son of God would stoop to wash the disciples' feet. There's probably no more counterintuitive scene in all the Bible than this, topped only by a God on the cross, right? I mean, how in the world? This isn't like washing one another's feet in this room, though that would be quite awkward. Most of us are taking baths regularly, or showers. I don't know who takes baths, but showers regularly. Um, we come in with relatively clean feet. In a culture like this, dirt and mud walking from one place to the other, this is a repulsive act of service. The greatest contrast between the eternal Son of God and mere sinners is exemplified in this text from John 13. He washed the feet of the sons of thunder who were just arguing about who's going to sit in places of prominence and whether we want to call down fire from heaven and just wipe people out. He washed the feet of Thomas, who would soon doubt his resurrection. He washed the feet of Nathaniel, who once said, there's nothing good that can come out of Nazareth. He washed the feet of Philip, who had been with him for so long, but still just didn't seem to know who he was. He washed the feet of Peter, who would soon deny him twice. In fact, every pair of feet that he scrubbed and scraped would soon run away from him. And then to top it all off, as if we needed some icing on the cake, he washed Judas' feet, knowing full well that this one would betray him. And then he asked a question at the conclusion of this stunning scene, John 13, verse 12. Do you understand what I've done to you? Clearly, the rhetorical answer, no. No, they had no clue what he'd done. So then he answers his own question. You, you call me teacher and Lord. And you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So, the pre-existent Son, God, taking on flesh, dwelling among us, takes on the form of a servant 
and washes the disciples' feet and then says, if you truly consider me your Lord and teacher, you're going to follow my example and do the very same thing. Now, I don't know about you, but this text rings a bit hollow at the outset because I stink at following Jesus' example as a servant. This is not naturally within my gift mix to take on the form that Jesus exemplifies in John 13. Apart from the flip side of this equation, it is really challenging to consider how do we follow Jesus' example doing something that we just simply cannot do. The good news of the gospel of Jesus is that not only does he set an example that we are to follow, but by virtue of his spirit dwelling within us, he empowers us to do the very things that he exemplifies. Let me say that again. The spirit of God dwelling within believers of God empowers all those who know him to do the very things that he exemplifies. Apart from that reality, all Christianity is is a bunch of do-behavior-works-white-knuckle deal. And I get really discouraged by that because I'm going to walk out of the room and be a really terrible servant. But the hope of the gospel for me is that God did something much more profound than just set a WWJD example for me to follow. He actually empowers me to do the very thing that he calls me to do by virtue of the sending of the Spirit. So let's read Luke 22, 24 and following. A dispute arose among them. I mean, this is, this is classic gospel, right? Look, let your eyes drift back to what's just happened. What's the scene that's just happened? Jesus held out the height of his sacrificial service, the body and blood that's going to be broken, setting the precedent for the Lord's Supper. And the boys are disputing about who's going to be the greatest. And he said to them, The kings and the Gentiles exercise the lordship over you, Those in authority over them are called benefactors. But it's not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I'm actually among you as one who serves. Now you are those who have stayed with me in trials, and I assign to you, as my Father has assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my kingdom, at my table in my kingdom, and sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So notice what Jesus does. He gives them the promise of position, power. They're going to sit on thrones, but it's not going to be this side of heaven. He says there is a day coming where you will rule and reign with me over new heavens and new earth. But this side of heaven, the economy of the kingdom of God is going to be upside down. In contrast to the Gentiles who lord it over you, who vaunt their position, their power, their wealth, you're going to be ones who serve. How would this, how would this happen? We don't see this embodied, though Jesus continually harps on this theme consistently until, flip over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, turn over just a couple of books. We begin to see Jesus' commands of sacrificial service embodied among the people of God on the opposite side of of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Jesus is crucified, buried, and resurrected, ascends to the Father, 
And then as he promised at the outset of uh, Acts chapter 2, he sends his spirit to dwell within his people to empower them to do the very things that he's commanded them to do all along, but that they couldn't do on their own. And so in Acts 2, this first snapshot of the life of the church, we read this, beginning in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are, are being saved. So what, what we have is, is, is really sandwich bread on this picture of the life of the church. God unilaterally sends his spirit, and then God is the one who is credited in verse 47 with growing the church, with expanding his kingdom. And between this sandwich bread of God's unilateral action to accomplish what people can't do on their own, we see by virtue of God's work among them, all of these things that they're doing. They're sitting under the apostles' teaching. They're fellowshipping with one another. They're breaking bread. They're, pra- they're, they're engaged in meaningful prayer. God's accomplishing wonders and signs. They're selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. This is not stuff that we muster up the ability to do on our, on our own. So God continues, as Luke records, continues to grow and expand his church. Flip over to Acts 6. Acts chapter 6. Luke's gospel paralleled with his continued writing in the book of Acts. The book of Acts testified to God's continued work amongst his church, really tracing the spread of the early believers. We see in Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, in these days, so the church has continued to expand, it's continued to grow, it's continued to fan out. Uh, The disciples were increasing in number, and a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, and they said, it's not right that uh, we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. they, They do that, and then in verse seven, we see the recording from Luke that the word of God continued to increase The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So as the church continues to expand, it continues to fan out. There's the requirement, in fact, the responsibility of the church to to see to it that people are not overlooked by the servant needs of the church. And so so this uh, really, the first use of the the word deacon, which which means servant, there's a lot of discussion of the parallel between Acts chapter 6 and uh, later mentions by Paul of, of the office of deacon in the life of the church. Are these the same or are they different? Well, what makes that really challenging is that the word itself just means a servant. He's just one who carries significant weight in the church and serving and making sure that the ministries of the church happen. 
So we see this happening in the life of the church. But, but notice that these are not in some way a disconnected group of those that manifest certain virtues that the rest of those who are indwelt by God's Spirit don't possess. In the same way that we saw last week, Hugh teaching that we all have a responsibility to proclaim the gospel. Yet we see Paul, Paul clearly mentioned that God sets apart certain people with a unique gift and proclivity towards evangelism. So we wouldn't say that there are 10% of the believers who are evangelists and all the rest of us, we get a free pass on that deal, right? Nothing you got to do towards evangelism, we'll let them take care of it. In the same way, we would say that the responsibility of serving is a general mark of all of God's people. And in his kindness, he sets apart certain individuals to carry strategic weight in the life of the body that exemplify these virtues in such a way that allows them uh, to be set apart by, by the church. Right? This is not a unique gift mix. It's rather the mark of the indwelling of the Spirit in the life of all of God's people. It is, in fact, service is the public manifestation of the virtue of humility in the life of God's people. This is the outworking. This is the, the public face of a really shy virtue like humility. So, as it were, this servant's posture stands in sharp contrast to the me-centered world that you and I live in. It sets us apart from the Gentiles who exercise lordship over them. And, and Jesus knew something else about service. He knew that it was, in fact, the most fulfilling way for you and I to live our lives. Here's what I mean by that. Consider Matthew uh, 10, 38 through, through 39. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, now certainly this, this inverse relationship between finding your life and losing it, losing your life and find it, has eternal manifestations, right? Clearly, there are eternal consequences to seeking to vault yourself in your own pride, find your life, and then realize in the last day, God says, apart from me, I never knew you. And those who submit, bow the knee to Christ in this life, counterintuitively, then are vaulted to eternal dwelling with God forever. But this same principle has implications for this life. This isn't merely an eternal life text. This is, this is also a promise for, for this life, that the life that God designed for his people, the life to the full that John 10.10 10 promises us, is best embodied through a life of service. Because God, Jesus knew something brilliant about the human psychology. We all experience the, the fullness of things through contrast. Here's what I mean by that. Stepping out of your door on an April morning when the weather is beginning to turn and the birds are chirping, the trees are blossoming, that scene is heightened by the depth of winter. Right? It's heightened by the experience we had of ice skating through our backyards two weeks ago. Eternal spring sounds nice, but in reality, spring is best, in, it's best embraced in contrast to the depth of winter. In, this, in the same way, food is best treasured, it's best celebrated in contrast to, to, to hunger. Right? 
Ruth's Chris is best appreciated in contrast to Golden Corral, right? If we didn't have a steady dose of my own feeble stakes, Ruth's Chris doesn't have quite the the punch that it might otherwise have. If I get a steady dose of Ruth's Chris, well, it sounds nice, right? That'd be great every night. But yet, we experience the height of human emotion, depth of meaning, joy in contrast. So, there is great danger to always getting what you want. The me-centered life actually works to your disadvantage. You experience the beauty of God's love for you, the beauty of communion with the saints, the beauty of a prayer life, the beauty of feasting on God's word best when you're pouring out your life in service to others. This is the counterintuitive way that God's kingdom works. Service, therefore, must be woven into the fabric of our lives. We, We must, as Paul does, pour our lives out as a drink offering and learn as we're doing that, this is a far better way to live my life than to seek after what I want around every turn. God's doing something transformative in me. For this to happen, we've got to weave service into the fabric of our lives and in all sorts of different ways. Let me give you uh, four contrasts or Four areas that, that, that I think service must infuse the fabric of our lives. One, a life of service must be both routine and unique. Okay, so number one, sir, a life of service must be both routine and unique. Thankfully, God in his kindness gives many of you massive piles of laundry to do every stinking day right? God in his kindness doesn't magically wash your dishes after an evening meal. He allows them to accumulate the sink to, right? Okay. So God builds into the, to the day-to-day grind of our lives the necessity of giving ourselves in service. But we can lull ourselves to sleep if service is only built into the routine fabric of our lives we can get very tone-deaf to the voice of God if that's the only way that we are consistently serving. So we must, as, as people desiring to grow in sacrificial giving and living, find unique ways to force ourselves to serve on top of the routine ways, the routine fabric of our lives. A second tension is a life of service, or the act of service, must be both event and lifestyle driven. Often when we talk about service in the church, we attach really weird follow-up words to it like service day, service project, service event, mission trip. Okay? What that does, if we're not really, really careful, is it convinces us that I can live 95% of my life really selfishly Go and paint the church for three hours on a Saturday morning like once a quarter, quarter and flex, flex my muscles like, wowzer, did you see how much I served today? Right? That buys me at least four months from having to do another one of those service project kind of things, right? 
So service, I, I've noticed in the, this, this tension that people, people are really good at showing up on the service day once a quarter, and they're really stinky at serving their spouse. That's a weird tension to me, right? What that tells me is that you're really good at, sh- at serving when other people are watching and you can show off what a great servant you are, and you're not really good at actually humbling yourself and caring for the people that God's put closest to you. So it's got to be both. Event service is significant. It's important. But it can't just be events. It's got to be a lifestyle. A third contrast, a tension for me in living a life of servant is I must serve at, at one time both the apparent other and the apparent equal. I'm going to use those words carefully. Again, when we use this language uh, within the local church, we can very quickly as a middle, upper middle class, southern church, fall prey to the notion that I am the Savior who goes in to minister to all those people that don't have the stuff that I've got. They are the apparent other, and I'm going to go and stoop to serve the least of these. Now again, hear my heart in this. That is important, meaningful work, and we need to do it consistently. We need to give ourselves away to a life of service, and we need to do the hard work of working through how do I do that, not as the arrogant saviors that are coming in, but as meaningful lovers of humanity, caring deeply for those who may be the least of these in this culture. It can be done, but it takes a massive amount of work. It's much more difficult than just showing up for the service project at the soup kitchen once a week. But we also must consider, how do I serve the apparent equal? Perhaps this is a far greater challenge. It's one thing to consider how can I serve someone that's four steps down the socioeconomic rung than me, but what does it look like for you to minister and serve one who's four steps up the socioeconomic rung than you? If we argue that all humanity is equally in need of the servant-hearted nature of the church, then your neighbor who makes six figures and never wants for anything has just as deep of needs as the person who's four steps down the socioeconomic rung. It's just going to take a lot greater intentionality and honestly a lot greater work for you to minister and serve that individual than it is someone four steps down the rung. Tracking with me? The emotional depth of need the nature of the suffering that that individual, six-figure individual experiences is radically different than the experience of someone four steps down the socioeconomic rung. But we have to, we can't write off a whole subset of people that are somehow equal to us and our eyes are above us and say, well, I don't have to serve them. I'm just serving these. We've got to live in tension in both of those worlds. And then lastly, we've got to, to, to serve at one time both individually and corporately. Uh, individually in, individually, and the, the regular ethos of our lives that we're, we're pouring ourselves out in service to one another, we're figuring out ways, how has God wired me to serve, how can I minister to a neighbor, co-worker, friend, so forth and so on. But also we understand that God has designed his church so that we together live in service to one another. That the body of Christ is meant to operate in in mutual service and edification for one another. And that's why um, some friends from the church, Josh and uh, Liz Miller, uh, Matt, several other folks, uh, spent an entire Sunday and uh, more emails than you would care to know 
um, folks like Amber as well, uh, putting these 16 uh, boards in front of you. They've been out for a couple weeks now. These are 16 key areas that we've isolated around the life of the church that we just need people who are postured as servants. Uh, they range from gifting and ability, passions. There's, there's all sorts of different areas that we need uh, people to serve. This is the motive behind the name tags uh, that you have this morning. Um, we're going to ask that over the next uh, week or so, this morning following the service, tonight at the Super Bowl party or next week when we're together, that you would intentionally and prayerfully consider one to two corporate ways that you could lean into serving together with the body of Christ that's here at Cherrydale. The way we're going to frame it is we're going to ask that you all consider how you can serve in kids plus one. Okay? Uh, kids plus one. Uh, we have, uh, in the life of the church right now, about 120 spots in need of volunteers just to care for the children in the life of this church. Okay? You guys have some babies. Um, and that demands a lot of need and care and intentionality. Amber, if you have not um, said a public word of thanks to Amber and you're a parent, shame on you. Um, she goes above and beyond week in and week out to build teams and care and honestly works harder than anybody else around this joint, all right? So you need to be really thankful for what Amber does. She's uh, spelled out, I believe it's on this one, am I right? Yeah on this one, uh, those 120 slots where she needs volunteers. We're going to ask you first to consider how can I serve within kids' ministry and assume that God is calling you to do that, okay? That we all have a responsibility to lean in together to care for that, that specific ministry in the life of our church. And, and just as an aside, um, this is not just a female area of service, all right? We desperately need men who can model servant-hearted, sacrificial living to rock a baby back in the back room. Okay. Um, you need to learn how to change a diaper. It'll come in handy one day. It's a good skill set to have. So consider, uh, consider how your yes can be on the table. If you're not a diaper changer, baby rocker, there are areas in grade school, in good news clubs, there are a host of other areas where you're probably going to get a pass on diaper changing. All right? So consider that, and then consider one of the other 15 areas where you can say, I will intentionally commit to praying and stewarding my gifts to serve the local church in this area. If you're curious, well, it seems like they got everything together. What we, <laughs> then you, you've got your eyes closed, um, one. <laughs> Two, uh, what we're going to do is just let these boards fill up and uh, encourage you, like, tonight as you come back and next week as you come, as you look at this board and you see, like, one name tag on it, assume God is calling you to that area, right? Right? There's a hole that needs to be filled, and we need somebody to do it. What we're looking for is at the end of next week that every member of our church has their name on at least one of these boards. That you're saying for the next year, for the rest of 2016, I will commit to stewarding my gifts as best I know how to corporately serve the body in one of these areas. If you need instruction on that, there's a list in front of each of these boards. You can ask key leaders. You can ask us tonight at the Super Bowl party. Um, but we want to be a corporate body who's serving together as well as individuals on mission. The good thing is that these vital signs, these marks of transformation, feed each other. So they're not, uh, they're not mutually exclusive categories. Giving 
Makes us better servants. Servants make us better at missionary living. Glad-hearted worship leads to service. This is what it seems that Paul's, the point that Paul's making in Philippians 2. Famous text, Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. If there's uh, any encouragement in Christ, uh, is there? It, 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 I mean, you guys don't, Kathy, amen. She's the only one. Uh, but the rest of you are aggressive head nodders. All right, so is there encouragement in Christ? The answer is yes, right? Is there uh, any comfort from his love? Again, right? This is yes, right? There's comfort from his love. Participation in the spirit, affection and sympathy. Then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Don't do anything from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. What a life verse for us all, right? Let each of you look out not for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. So, so up to this point, we're doing the servant thing. Now, what I want you to notice is where Paul roots this life of service. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. He took on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So notice what Paul does. He, he breaks out into a doxology, this is classic Paul, probably quoting one of the older hymns in the life of the church. He spontaneously glad-heartedly worships. And what's the outcome of that glad-hearted worship? A life of service. He says, if you get this, if you get this doxology, then it's going to manifest itself in your practice in the life of the church. You're not, you're not going to do stuff from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but you're going to consider others as more important than yourselves. Glad-hearted worship fuels servant-hearted living. You consider Jesus the one who was preexistent with God, who did not consider position or prestige or power something to be grasped or held on to at all cost. But he willingly laid it aside. Consider the cascade of humility required for Jesus to condescend to human flesh and come to this earth. He poured himself out. He emptied himself. He laid aside appearance. He had no stately appearance, Isaiah says, or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He laid aside prestige, a king born in a manger, washing stinking disciples' feet and dying on a Roman cross. He laid aside power. He who had all things, who could command the armies, came, as Matthew says, gentle and lowly in heart. He laid aside position. He laid aside his possessions, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. He became poor so that you might become rich. His death was the perfect embodiment of the life of a servant. And through this sacrificial service, he accomplished your salvation. The Son of Man who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Those of us who have been saved by virtue of this life of service 
can make no excuses but live such a life in response. Far beyond the songs that we sing, the church services that we attend, we model our glad-hearted worship by willingly giving of ourselves, even when we don't want to, in a life of service to others. This is the mark of God's people. We serve God as we serve one another. That's why I love the picture that God gives us of this Lord's Supper. I don't know, know about you and your, your church background, but uh, growing up uh, in the church that I, I attended, uh, the, the pattern of distributing the Lord's Supper was pretty much the same uh, every time we had the meal. Maybe I remember a couple of occasions when it was different, but most typically the pastor would uh, would read the, the text of the Lord's Supper, and they would call the, the deacons forward. And the deacons would form kind of a single-file line here across the front, and uh, they would take trays and distribute them among themselves, and then they would fan out and uh, pass the elements of the meal uh, across the rows of the pews in the life of the church. And once everybody had their elements, the, uh, the pastor would read and say, uh, take this in remembrance of me, do this in remembrance of me. And the church as a whole would, would receive the, the Lord's Supper together. Right? Well, that hasn't been our standard practice here at Cherrydale, though I think there is great significance in that picture. Uh, my uh, young mind not really thoughtful of what's happening here, misses and minimizes the beauty of what that act actually communicates. That as we come together and take the meal together, we're, we're proclaiming two things. We're proclaiming as the, the body, the bread, the singular loaf of Christ is broken and distributed amongst us. The singular cup is poured out and distributed among us, we're declaring together that we are all united to the one singular bread, the one singular body that's been broken, the one singular blood that's been poured out, Jesus Christ, right? We're not isolated individuals, but rather we're all feasting on the same one who died for us. We're in Christ. And then secondly, and I think this is the real significance of this picture, we're, we're all truly in Christ together, but we're also in Christ together. There's a vertical and a horizontal act that's proclaimed in the Lord's Supper. That God has reconciled me to himself by virtue of singular Christ, one Jesus, not a Jesus for you and a Jesus for you, and a Jesus for you, one for us all, distributed amongst us, and by virtue of the fact that I'm taking it together, I'm united to you and to you and to you and to you and to you. So my relationship with God is not something that I broker one-on-one -on -one without care or concern for what's going on here. In fact, this is why Jesus says, if you come to the take of the table and you realize you got something against one of you, bring your offerings, this corporate act of worship. He says, hey, pause on all that stuff and get things right with one another. Right? That we proclaim as we're doing this that I have a responsibility to love and serve you. And so that, that's the way we're going to take the supper uh, this morning. Uh, in just a minute, I'm going to pray, and we're going to invite some folks up who will distribute the elements of the meal to you. I'm going to ask that you take juice and a piece of bread. Uh, if you're here this morning and uh, you are not a believer, you have questions about the state of your soul before God, we're going to ask that you pass on the meal and come and talk to one of us after 
about how you can know and have clarity that you are in Christ, that you have feasted on Christ. But if you're here this morning and you have, by faith, trusted in the substitutionary work of Jesus on your behalf, then this meal is for you. We're going to ask that you take the elements as they're distributed and just hold them, spend some time in personal and private reflection and prayer, uh, known sin in your life to repent of those things, perhaps even to pray with your spouse or friend that you're sitting with. And once the elements have been distributed, we're going to take the meal together as a picture of our unity in Christ and in one another, in the great servant and in service to one another. So join me as we pray, and then we'll distribute the elements. God, across our diversity this morning, we share one thing in common. We are all desperately in need of Jesus. We, we who are dead, hopeless, and helpless, separated from you by virtue of our fallen nature, virtue of Adam's sin, nothing that we can do to earn our way back to you on our own, we testify this morning that we who are in Christ believe that you met us at our point of greatest need. You sent Jesus to pay the price that our sin deserved to live the life that we could not live and credit to us a righteousness that we could never earn. You modeled sacrificial service in the sending of Christ to do that on our behalf. He set an example and then sent his spirit to empower us to embody the very things that you command us to do. We thank you that in your kindness you have not only united us to you, but you've united us to some fellow brothers and sisters, people that uh, in your wisdom you have orchestrated together at this time, at this place, to love and serve you and pursue transformation together. We pray this morning as we reflect on the broken body of Christ and the spilt blood of Christ and the unity that we have with one another, that you would propel us to a life of sacrificial service for Christ's sake and the world. We ask it in his good name. Amen.